they're not known for having a high amount of torque. I guess they're kind of similar to uh, rotaries in that regard. Oh, uh, you just triggered a whole bunch of people right there. I know. On this episode of Tuned In, we've got Craig Williams from Neutron Engines joining us. And Craig is a pretty smart cookie when it comes to mechanical engineering and design. Uh, What we're talking about during today's episode is the design of his bespoke Honda K24 based V8. So this is going to be a 4.8 litre V8. Uh, Craig is building this with the intention of it being able to produce around 750 horsepower naturally aspirated revving all the way to 10,000 RPM. Now we know that the Honda K series cylinder head uh, as far as four cylinder naturally aspirated cylinder heads go is pretty much right up the top of my list but 750 horsepower is still uh, absolutely no joke. If 750 horsepower isn't enough for you though he's also building it with the intention of being able to add forced induction and we talk in this episode about the ability to make 1200 maybe 1500 plus horsepower another interesting aspect with this engine design is that Craig has been pretty smart with it in terms of the flexibility of being able to mount it into a variety of different chassis so there's a lot uh, that goes into that he's lent heavily on Fusion 360 with the design basically making sure that everything has been built in the virtual world so that before he has a single component actually made and outlays the funds to have those parts made, uh, he's going to have the confidence to know that everything absolutely works. So there's a huge range of topics in here that are going to be perfect for anyone uh, with an interest in the internal workings of an engine and the design of something so bespoke. Before we get into our interview though I just wanted to mention an Instagram that I put up recently on our HPA 101 Instagram and this is uh, quite useful for today's topic because it is an engine building topic we're looking at piston to cylinder wall clearance now there's a lot of clearances inside our engine all of them are pretty critical the piston to cylinder wall clearance though is one of the more critical As its name implies, this is simply the clearance between the outside of our piston skirt and the inside diameter of our cylinder wall. Uh, If we don't have sufficient clearance here, what's going to happen is as the piston heats up and expands in operation, it's going to end up seizing in the bore. That's not going to end well. On the other hand, if our piston to cylinder wall clearance is too loose, we're going to end up with the piston essentially rattling up and down the bore. That's also going to have the negative aspect that the piston is not going to be well supported and in turn this is going to affect its life expectancy it's going to wear in other words and it's also going to negatively affect the uh, ring seal so getting this right is really really critical now when we're building our own engines in the home workshop this isn't an aspect that we physically can control it's something that is going to be set by our engine machinist But it is important to first of all have the conversation with the engine machinist about what that target clearance needs to be and then also at HPA we believe in never making assumptions. So ultimately once you get all your parts back from the machinist it is up to the person doing the assembly to check every single clearance and make sure that is correct. And the tool we use for doing this is twofold actually. We start with a micrometer measuring the outside diameter of the piston skirt and then we use a dial bore gauge and we zero the dial ball gauge and the micrometer between 
the two anvils and then we can use that inside of the bore to measure the piston to cylinder wall clearance. A couple of other aspects we learned from this as well by checking that piston to cylinder wall clearance at the top, centre and bottom of the bore as well as in two planes perpendicular to each other. We can also measure the bore for any taper from top to bottom or belling and we can also measure any out of rounds. So it gives us a lot of information about the condition of our bores and whether they are suitable for our application. And if you are interested in learning more about engine building, this is a skill that is completely within the reach of the average home enthusiast. We do have a range of courses covering engine building topics. We've got our engine building fundamentals course, our practical engine building course, and we've also got a, a course that will teach you how to correctly degree a cam or performance camshafts, which is one of the more common upgrades we make when building a performance engine. You can find those courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. And as an added bonus, as a listener of this podcast, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75. That will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HP Academy course. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's get into our interview with Craig. All right, welcome to the podcast, Craig. Great to have you here. Uh, this is an episode that I've personally been really looking forward to recording. I've been following you on Instagram for a while and I always find your posts really inspiring. Uh, so for those who, who don't know what you're doing on Instagram, can you give us sort of like a, a, a brief high level view of your your sort of bespoke engine? Yeah, so I'm a mechanical engineer, um, and I've kind of needed to find an outlet and kind of test my skills and abilities as an engineer. I decided to create and design my own custom engine. I started off with, I was going to make a flat 12 uh, engine, uh, but the size constraints of that engine was larger than the CNC's I, was, I had access to. And so I switched to a flat plane V8 and then I wanted to make something that was like really awesome and different. I'm kind of bored of seeing so many LS swaps and so many just maybe a, a 2JZ swap. And it's like four engines that dominate the entire car scene. And it's been played out for sure. Different. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I'm glad you sort of mentioned your mechanical engineering background. Most people don't wake up one day and sort of think, hey, you know what, I'm going to design from the ground up a, a custom V8. So uh, that mechanical engineering background, can, can you sort of talk to us just briefly maybe about what that actually involves in your day-to-day -day -day job? Obviously, mechanical engineering can cover a, a pretty vast amount of ground. Yeah, so I've actually done a couple of different things with uh, my degree. Um Number prior to my degree, though, I'm super into cars. I started off with an old muscle car, rebuilt it, then engine, designed it, stroked it, and did all that. But uh, so very much mechanic as well. But uh, me mechanical engineering started off uh, at a materials company doing something called diffusion bonding. It's where you take two dissimilar metals and crush them at high temperatures and pressures until they bond and it can create some really uh, crazy applications for aerospace, satellites, and things like that. So I, I was there. Then I switched to a Department of Defense contractor, worked on some uh, composites and some 
very heavily armored vehicles. I don't, I don't know how much I could say about that. And then from there, I actually switched to uh, consumer electronic devices uh, with LTE integration. And I've been designing a lot of plastic housings, docks, and large cycle life plastic components. But automotive has always been my passion. And so mm-hmm. I've, I, I enjoy my work, but I wanted to get back into automotive and doing that again. And so that's why I partially started this project was to push myself in the automotive sector even more. So, so just to be clear as well, this is, this is a passion project, a sideline for you. Uh, obviously you haven't actually got a commercial, commercially viable product to sell yet as well. So you've still got a day job. This is, this is sort of a, a personal project. Yeah, it's a personal project. I'm fully self-funded. Um, I, I have tens of thousands of dollars into this project so far. Uh, I still have tens of thousands of dollars to spend uh, to get it to that uh, an actual product viable state. Um, but I've uh, pulled the money aside. I have it all set aside, and uh, this is something that I'm 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 going to do it. And it might take me a few times. I might have a few coffee block engine tables, but you know, it's going to be something that I will accomplish. Sure. All right. So a a big component of what you've been posting on your Instagram is the 3D models that you've, you've developed for this V8. So where did your skill set with 3D modeling come from is that part of your mechanical engineering background or is that not so much essential and you've developed it yourself so it's something that's very critical for a mechanical engineer you need to be able to use industry standard uh, CAD programs generally the most popular one here in the US is SolidWorks um, but I'm also proficient with PTC Creo I've used ANSYS and a couple other ones. Uh, But for this project, I've used Fusion 360. Um, And that was to kind of separate my my work stuff and my my project stuff completely. So that way there was no possibility of, hey, you designed this on a company computer or anything like that. Got to... Got to keep all that IP and all of that stuff separated. And that's a very important thing if you're ever working on personal projects. Keep that off of your work computer. Don't yeah, that, don't that's pretty smart. That. So, I mean, I, I, I don't do any 3D modeling myself. I think I, I, I used SolidWorks maybe 15 years ago back in uni for, for a, a paper, and that's about the extent of it. But these days we see Fusion 360 is... Uh, very popular in the hobbyist market generally because you, you get cheap or free access to it versus SolidWorks, which is pretty pretty expensive. Uh, like at a high level, the capability of Fusion 360, is there anything sort of that, that really limits it in comparison to SolidWorks? Um, so one thing I like about Fusion 360 is every month they basically have an update to it uh, that adds more features and more capability. And... When I started this project and switched over to Fusion 360 several years ago, there was some pretty stark differences and limitations. But I would say that 
that gap has decreased significantly. And now it's not as big of a gap. I would say the biggest limitation is flow simulations. Fusion 360 is not uh, as capable. It is just barely adding some of those flow features. Just now, even last month, they added some. But it's still not comparable to SolidWorks. And it's not comparable to ANSYS. And so for those type of simulations, I often have to take it off of Fusion 360 and put it onto a more powerful software for my flow analysis to make sure that I'm getting proper data. All right. I, I don't want to dive too deep into this now, and we will come back to it because I want to talk particularly about the, the CFD aspect. But uh, let's dive a little bit more into this engine and how the, the idea came to be. You mentioned initially you had uh, ideas behind a flat V12 and you've gone flat plane crank V8 using Honda K-Series heads. So when you've essentially got a blank sheet of paper in front of you and you're looking at the options available, how did you narrow it down to that particular combination, 4.8 litre V8 flat plane crank and Honda K-Series head? Yeah, so um, I was very much inspired by uh, a gentleman named John Hartley. He designed the H1 V8. It's a Hayabusa V8. Uh, He did it back in, I want to say 2006 or 2007, around that timeline. And um, then there's a couple of other uh, um, builders that also are built around the Hayabusa V8, uh, Hayabusa cylinder heads and have made V8 engines. And I know that that could have been done. And I looked at you know, doing a, possibly a different uh, motorcycle bay cylinder head. But I felt like that market has been semi-saturated already. Yep. And so then I was like, okay, I need to look at regular production for cylinder, four cylinders. And then it was who makes the best four cylinders. And for me, based on like the flow analysis that I could find and all of that, it seems like Honda makes the best uh, uh, four cylinders and that can rev really high. And then on top of that, Honda never made a production car V8. They made racing V8s, but they never made a production V8. And I felt like there was a market opportunity there as a possibility if I could pull this off that there would be a community that would be interested in this outside of, um, that would be interested in this as like, hey, this is a Honda. I want to have a Honda V8 really bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I I can't uh, can't disagree with uh, with what you've said there. I mean, the the K series K20 or K24. Uh, in my own experience, I've probably tuned 20, 30 of them, maybe more actually, over my career. And, and they continue to impress. I mean, as a naturally aspirated engine, it, it's, you know, in my opinion, from a four-cylinder, that there's just nothing that comes close. Maybe the SR20 VE cylinder head uh, close, but uh, yeah, the K-Series definitely, you know, definitely pretty impressive. And I think the other thing you sort of touched on there, that, that Honda community, I don't know. Arguably, probably one of the uh, the strongest uh, out there as well. So I think that that's probably pretty smart. Uh, 
just to come back to the production car versus uh, motorcycle engine, because you mentioned Hartley, uh, I think that sort of ended up being the basis of the RPE V8 that uh, Radical uses well, which we actually did a, a YouTube uh, video on quite a while back. Um, as I understand it, and I haven't really gone too deep into it here, there'd be a, a couple of advantages with the motorcycle cylinder heads in that motorcycle engines generally are designed to rev higher than automotive car engines. So that's one thing, and I'll get to why I think that's important shortly. The other thing, the, the design with the Hayabusa engine in particular uh, is modular, which I would imagine from a design and building perspective would make it easier and cheaper. And what I mean by modular is that the barrel assembly is separate to the crankcase and the cylinder head. So when you're building a billet block for the Hayabusa-based V8 or mo- motorcycle-based V8s, that could be much simpler and easier because you're not designing the whole cylinder block as well, the cylinder's walls, I should say. The, they can just be the production motorcycle uh, barrel. So any sort of thoughts there? I mean, obviously you've gone down this path, but uh, you, you would have you would have considered this? Yeah, I actually considered going down um, a motorcycle barrel assembly design for the V8 uh, with the Honda. It was something that I actually had reached out to John Hartley and emailed him a couple of times back and forth. Hey, this is my idea. What do you think? And he was like, hey, maybe consider this, consider that. And he answered a lot of my questions uh, early on in the project. Um, But for me, one of the things that I know people are going to do with my engine is they're going to boost it and they're going to boost it all the way to 11. And that's just something that I expect is going to happen. And in order to have block rigidity and strength, I needed to have webbing across both cylinders, uh, banks, and to strengthen that. And so then it was like, I could make this barrel assembly and it would be cheaper. But if I want it to be really strong and robust and to be able to handle very high horsepower numbers, at least potentially or capable of it, then I should make it a full-blown bullet V8 style block. That's very uh, stiff. So I feel like naturally aspirated, I could get away with it and I could go with the motorcycle style and the stiffness would be sufficient. But for a boosted application, I I didn't want to risk it. And so I pushed for and moved forward with the billet block. Yep. If I have enough uh, orders and uh, there's enough interest, I will do a cast version of my block. Um, cast versions uh, aren't going to be quite as strong, but I mean, the cast uh, K-series block itself with sleeves is capable of a thousand horsepower. So a cast block can be very robust. It just, you have to design it and make sure you take all those considerations in from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to come back to that motorcycle barrel style, a lot of these engines, the, the, actual sleeves are, are not uh, a ductile iron or anything like that. They're a, a nicosyl plating, nicosyl coating on, on alloy, which then inherently is, is going to 
uh, limit the maximum amount of cylinder pressure that this, the, the, the engine can withstand. So that's sort of getting to your point of the strength that you wanted for the boosted application. You've actually gone one step further as well uh, with your billet block. You're, you're using a ductile iron sleeve, I understand. Can you talk to us a little bit about what they are and why you went that path? Yeah, so uh, a lot of different engines have... Uh, they can have, as you said, uh, a spray-on liner that's inside the cylinders, and it'll be a, a, a aluminum block, and you just spray this stuff, and it, it adds a hardness to that cylinder. It makes it so it can handle the piston going up and down quite a bit. Because you obviously can't run rings against uh, alloy. It's, it's just not going to work, so that's what this coating's for. Yeah, and uh, it's really amazing. And coating technology in the last, like, 20, 30 years has just been a huge uh, increases in, in performance and capability, but you're still left with the strength of that aluminum as that cir- like that circle of uh, aluminum of your cylinder. And so uh, cast iron is significantly stronger and can handle pressures much, much, much higher than uh, aluminum can. Like the Coyote V8 has, I think it's like a one millimeter or a two millimeter cast iron sleeve that's put into their aluminum block just to give it that extra amount of strength. And Coyote blocks can handle a ton of horsepower uh, right out the bat without having uh, as many issues. Uh, My engine is, I'm using Darton, mid-sleeve uh and so it's a fully jack water jacketed uh sleeve and it's really thick and it can handle extreme cylinder pressures so the actual uh it should be able to handle 2500 uh horsepower uh the block itself then you need to switch to probably a dry sleeve and get the coolant out of there just for board distortion and all of those sort of considerations you're going to start running into. But yeah, I think if you've got something that can handle 2,500 horsepower, you probably, probably not too many people are going to be stretching the limits beyond that. So I don't want people to do that. <laughs> I, th- I, think I don't we're good. want, I don't want people. I would like it if people stayed under 1500 horsepower and that, that that's my, I, that's more than plenty. And I, I feel like, 1200 is even a lot and i think a lot of people think that they want this thousand horsepower mark but i feel like that's not uh, i i feel like as a community we've been so focused on a horsepower number the responsiveness and drivability where sometimes we're missing the mark i couldn't agree more i i you know coming from a drag racing background where yeah, we, we had a big focus on horsepower for a very good reason. Uh, yeah, I also see the social media and the print media has has played into this a lot over the years as well. You've got young guys just getting into the car scene, and girls for that matter, reading these magazines about 1,000 horsepower streetcars or 1,500 horsepower streetcars. So it becomes normalised. That the reality is they've never probably driven anything with 300 horsepower. And when you've got a small capacity four-cylinder engine, for example, that genuinely makes a 1,000 horsepower, it's going to be a horrible car to drive on the street. I can guarantee 
And probably if you built a, a package that made five or 600 horsepower with a better sized turbocharger, a wider power band, it, it would absolutely destroy the 1,000 horsepower streetcar on, on the street. So there's levels to this stuff that people who haven't actually lived through a car at that power level probably don't understand. And yeah, there's a million other things we could talk about there, maintenance, et cetera. But yeah, sense, sensible power targets and... Uh, drivability are something that are so often overlooked in the strive for uh, a big number that you can boast on your social media. Right, let's just come back a, a step as well. So you, you've mentioned that the design of this engine is is to use a flat plane crank. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't get too much into engine design. I've built more than my fair share of engines, but uh, generally we're dealing with whatever the, the manufacturer had decided from the base you know, d- design. So flat plane crank, uh, my understanding is there's some inherent disadvantages in terms of harmonics. Can you tell us what the upside of the flat plane crank is and, and why you decided to go with that? Yeah, so inherent advantages of uh, a flat plane crank are all of the counterweights and the actual um, uh, connecting rod journals are in the same plane. And that's why it's called a flat plane crank. And it allows for a much lighter crankshaft than a traditional cross plane crank. A cross plane crank, you're going to have very heavy counterweights. And in order for my engine to have uh, the heavy enough counterweights uh, in my size limitation, I would have to have tungsten slugs pressed into my crankshaft in order to get the weight high enough in order for it to be a cross plane. But another advantage of being a flat plane crank So is naturally they can rev higher and faster. Um, But for me, it was to be able to reuse the camshafts Um, by having a regular four cylinder is a flat plane crank. Like people think it's like this magic statement, but it's like all four cylinders are flat plane cranks and a flat plane V8 um, I could actually reuse those components of the camshaft and not have to have specialty grinds uh, or a reverse grind for the camshaft. And so just to, to dive into that a little bit, because I, it's difficult with a, a podcast format, we don't have the benefit of some nice graphics to show this, yeah. but <laughs> essentially we've got a four-cylinder engine that has a defined firing order and the camshafts are ground to obviously suit that firing order when the valves are open and closed. So that works with the flat plane crank because, as you mentioned, a four-cylinder engine uses a flat plane crank by definition. So when you've got a a V8 with a flat plane crank, everything works nicely. So with the cross plane crank, uh, this is going to affect the firing order of your Honda base V8, which is why you would then need to develop custom camshafts to to basically make sure the valves are opening and closing in the correct order for the cross plane. Yeah, so basically if I was to run a cross plane crank, I need custom camshafts. By running a flat plane crank, I can use the stock style uh, camshafts. I'm not planning to run uh, stock uh, camshafts, but 
I can use any aftermarket K series camshafts and uh, be able to run those without any issue. Also, uh, a flat plane crank, uh, the most popular manufacturer of that in a production car is Ferrari, and it has a very distinct and uh, unusual sound. And that's why a Ferrari V8 sounds so different than an old muscle car uh, burble and the way they sound. And I really enjoy the sound of a flat plane crank. Uh, there are vibration issues that uh, plague uh, flat plane cranks. And uh, I had to spend a lot of time uh, working on those vibrations to make sure that my vibrations were under control for the amount of stroke that I was targeting and the amount of weight of each particular component. Okay, so in terms of, of the understanding this vibration and, and managing it, so how do you understand what the vibrations are going to be? You, you've mentioned component weight, stroke, etc. There. So how do you how do you sort of model that and and get a, a real thorough understanding of what vibrations are going to exist in that crankshaft? And then, of course, the the follow up question to that is how do you manage them so you're not going to end up with component failure uh, due to these vibrations? So um, I I actually. My daily driver up until recently was a Shelby GT350, which had a flat plane crank. It's the Voodoo uh, engine by Ford. Really fun car. My car was a 2016, and I put about 40-something thousand miles on it um, and really enjoyed that. Um, but that car suffered from really bad vibrations, and it vibrated its uh, own oil pump off and loosened it and had massive oil spills three times. I nearly burned up that motor three, three times. Sorry, I was going to swear there. I I didn't know if it was appropriate or not. Um, uh, And I was, so it was something that I was hyper aware of and very sensitive about. Um, And so I targeted that, particular engine because that engine is the longest stroke flat plane uh, production V8 that's ever been made in a production car, as far as I'm aware. And at least that was Ford's marketing claims back in the day. Sure. And I believe it's either 94 or 95 millimeters. But there's a particular equation that that will tell you exactly what your second order vibration will be and the the amount of force it will apply okay. uh, in in newtons, and so you can. It sounds like act- Ford maybe went aware of <laughs> this equation. Uh, they they were aware of it. They actually changed the oil pump uh, design, uh, the oil filter, and how it attaches to the block in tw- in late 2017. So they fixed they fixed it. Um, but the early ones, uh, you, you had to put on the, the oil filter and then like crank it on like super hard. Like it wasn't just like, oh, here's like, you know, 20 inch pounds or however many Newtons. Uh, but it was like a significant amount of force. And even with that, it still vibrated off. And I was like this, it was very frustrating, um, not what you expect from a, a production vehicle, for sure. 
No, it's not. And I was, I was very, I was very concerned one time because I had, uh, uh, I had gone out to my car and there was this massive puddle underneath my vehicle and it was, uh, I tightened up the oil filter and I had one of my buddies and we grabbed five quarts of oil and we put in five quarts of oil and it still needed more. And I was like, how much oil did I dump? It was so bad. (laughs) So imagine the, uh, the warranty claims for Ford for that model year. It must be, uh, must be significant. All right, so you've got this equation, so you can calculate the uh, the magnitude of these vibrations, the forces mm-hmm. involved, uh, which begs the question, how do you cancel these out and manage them? Okay, so the main way that most people do it is by having a shorter stroke. The stroke directly affects the magnitude of this second-order vibration, and um, so Ferraris have a very short stroke. I want to say like 87 millimeters. Sure. And, um, I had considered what I could do was go with the K20 and make a, a K40 V8. Yeah. And, but I found that if I pulled the weight out as much as possible, I could actually be 15 per, I could have 15% less second order vibrations than the Ford Voodoo engine uh, with a 99 millimeter stroke okay. than the Voodoo with its 94 or 95 millimeter uh, stroke by having components that are basically a third as light. And that was so it helps you up to a point and it can get you and help to a certain degree, but there's only so much it can do. Okay. Uh, I also have like longer rods, but that's starting to get even more technical. Um, but yeah. Uh, that, that's good because I, I wanted to discuss this and it sort of it, it feeds nicely into this conversation around the geometry of the engine. And again, you've got a, a reasonable degree of flexibility when you're designing something bespoke. But of course, the Honda cylinder head to a degree it's going to define your bore center lines or how far apart the bores are it's going to limit to a degree your bore diameter uh so how did you sort of weigh up bore diameter versus stroke because again we really haven't talked about the the 10,000 rpm target that you've got for this engine which which is a bunch higher than Honda ever expected the K-Series to run. So typical sort of uh, mentality when designing an engine for much higher RPM would be to go with a, a shorter stroke. And you're talking about 99 millimeter, which is, is not that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, t- talk us around the decisions you had to make there and then also how that impacts on rod-to-stroke ratio. We'll probably keep that as a separate topic because that probably needs a, a little bit of explanation in and of itself. So you would talk, yeah, talk to us about your your bore versus stroke considerations for a start. Yeah, so the all base, well, the Honda K-Series has a 94 millimeter cylinder to cylinder center bore spacing. And uh, I that means if I have an, a 90 millimeter bore and a 90 millimeter uh, bore, so two 90 millimeter pistons, I'm only going to have four millimeters of material in between those two pistons in order to keep those that combustion pressure all in and held together. 
uh, that's not a lot of room. And it's actually very small for a V8. Um, uh, Audi uses a 91 millimeter uh, 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 bore-to-bore spacing, um, but Ferrari uses a 94, but then pretty much like everything else is like 100, 108 millimeters, so a whole lot bigger. So I was very limited on that. Um, And Hondas are also known for their not the best amount of torque. They're not known for having a high amount of torque. I guess they're kind of similar to uh, rotaries in that regard. Oh, uh, you just triggered a whole bunch of people right there. I know. Let's I know. move on. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, uh, Rob Dom and I have had a couple of chats about that. Uh, fun, fun topic, but definitely a, a lot of uh, triggered people. Um, so I wanted to have uh, extra torque. And so the way I could get that was by having a longer stroke. And that's why I went with the 99 millimeter of the K24 instead of the K20 with its 86, I want to say, millimeter stroke, uh, which would have been a little easier on my second order vibrations and probably was the more natural choice. But by going with extremely lightweight components, I could get away with uh, the second order vibrations and having it be less than an actual production engine uh, that's making um, current power and all that. Okay, so no replacement for displacement there and and you're at 4.8 versus what would be a four liter with a conventional K20 geometry. Let's talk about what options exist to get weight out of those components because you've got obviously a lot of off-the-shelf components available in terms of pistons and rods for the K-series. Kind of brings back as well to the conversation about the flat plane crank and the the camshafts. Really makes a lot of sense uh, on that topic because, again, massive range of off-the-shelf parts from huge number of aftermarket suppliers for the K-series. So people using this engine will be able to benefit from that without needing a bunch of really crazy custom parts. Uh, So... Was this a case of the were already off-the-shelf pistons available that met your criteria, or did everything you you designed need to be custom-made to get that weight down to the bare minimum? So in order to hit a 9,000 RPM redline, uh, off-the-shelf pistons and steel rods could be used. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted to showcase the maximum potential of my engine, and also have it be something that could be driven on the street. And so I'm building a particular engine that I think very few people will uh, spec it out in this particular fashion. So um, my engine has uh, custom pistons that have been five axis CNC'd and have been made ultra light and have had the the actual compression um, distance of the piston moved up so that way I can have a longer rod. And then my rods are also titanium. And so those two things combined were uh, allowed me to be able to push that RPM red line up to that 10,000 mark. 
uh four piston is a company and they've uh pushed their stroke on their uh their engines all the way up to i want to say 102 or 104 millimeters of stroke and push it all the way up to uh 11,000 rpm which is even higher and crazier but mm. a normal k24 if you swap out the oil uh pump on the bottom with an s2000 oil pump the regular stock engine can handle uh 9000 rpms and be able to do so reliably okay. and so with aftermarket pistons just stock aftermarket pistons and steel rods my engine will be able to handle 9000 to 9500 rpms very reliably at least that's my target and goal and then for my engine which i'm kind of going the little extra uh maximum effort uh i'm shooting for that 10,000 mark uh my math says i can go higher but i'm i'm trying i want this to be semi-reliable so absolutely keeping that limited at 10. in terms of the titanium rods it's a it's a material that i haven't used in engine construction in the past uh what sort of weight difference would you be talking between a conventional uh steel rod and one made from titanium um so you could look at uh an uh a boosted rod for a k-series uh like actual boosted line of steel rods those are around 600 to 620 grams a rod. For an ultra lightweight, naturally aspirated uh, connecting rod, that'll be around 420 grams. And my titanium ones um, are slightly a little different because I have a larger bearing diameter. I had to do a whole bunch to my crankshaft to make it strong enough to be able to handle stuff. Um, but with my larger bearing diameter, um, I was still able to hit 380 grams. If I was doing wow. a regular K series, it'd probably be around 340 to 320 grams. So you're um, talking a touch over half the weight of a conventional uh, turbocharged suited steel rod. Yeah. And I could have gone with aluminum rods, and a lot of people did suggest that, but aluminum, as you know, uh, rods have some limitations in fatigue life, and especially for what it is that I want to do with my engine, and that's revving up and down and going through the entire rev range multiple times, and that's not really the best application for aluminum rods. That yeah. rapid change of direction isn't the most ideal. Yeah, the, the the alloy rods, I, I think, really still are, are fairly firmly suited only for drag racing. And at the higher end of the power spectrum, you know, we see teams replacing a, a full set of rods after 50 to, to 70 passes. So you know, for something that's going to see road race application uh, or even daily driven use, it's yes there are people using them for daily drivers but it's you're kind of walking a bit of a tightrope with the fatigue life uh, limitations there so that that makes sense to to stay away from those uh, this leads me into the to the next aspect there which you've sort of touched on already is this rod to stroke ratio uh, which i think is probably one of the more overlooked aspects of 
engine geometry, particularly in the aftermarket. We were just mixing and matching uh, components. So can you talk to us briefly about what rod-to-stroke ratio actually is and, and how the rod-to-stroke ratio affects the ability of the engine to rev and, and how it produces power and torque? Yeah, so for my engine uh, and uh, a lot of engines, it affects the amount of vibration and the amount of piston speed. It actually affects a couple of different things. So for me, by having a longer rod, I can reduce the actual amount of vibration in my engine by 5% just by having this extra length to get, hey, I'm pushing that piston up just a little bit higher so that way it's coming down a little bit and it's moving up uh, and it's not as affected as much. And so that was like a, a one of my mitigating factors to try and make it so I could hit this higher RPM uh, target, I'd have to pull up my spreadsheet of what the the case twenty is uh, for its uh, its ratio, and then for what the K twenty four is, and then what I did for my little extra. Um, the regular it's the regular K twenty four has one hundred and fifty two millimeter uh, connecting rod length, and um, then. Uh, mine is 156 millimeter and then, you know, stroke of 99. Okay. So. Now, the, one of the, the effects there with the rod to strike ratio is that it does affect essentially the, the dwell at top dead center. Uh, and as we go longer on the rod to strike ratio or increase the rod to strike ratio, uh, that, that increases that dwell time. Uh, obviously the piston still has the same amount of time to get between top dead centre and bottom dead centre for a given RPM. That's not going to change, but uh, the the way it accelerates, uh, decelerates towards top dead centre and accelerates away is, is slightly different as the rod-to-stroke ratio uh, changes or increases. And the advantage with that uh, is the it can improve cylinder fill at higher RPMs. Uh, is that another consideration you, you, you've taken into account here? Yes, and for those that want to run, I've had a couple of people request uh, an actually shorter stroke than what it is that uh, I have of 99. Uh, they want to go 93 millimeters, and um, instead of changing the deck height of the engine of 231.5 millimeters, but dropping it, uh, but leaving it at that and then going with the longer rod. Um, it would be much more beneficial for those particular applications and they would be able to get higher RPMs out of it and be able to fill up even more, which then pushes, you know, uh, your components on your cylinder head have to be able to flow at that rate. Like you can't just say, oh, my engine's going to rev to X number uh, just because. And it's like, no, you have to have every component capable of doing that in order to make it happen. It's only uh, going to rev as high as your weakest link. Yeah, I, I think that's something that, again, in the wider enthusiast market is is so often overlooked. And the reason I say that is because it's a question I quite regularly field uh, in some of our webinars. Uh, basically, you know, the, the question is around just increasing the rev limit on the engine. 
And my answer to that is to what end? Because if you take your stock engine that revs to 7,000 RPM, that's the rev limit. Well, if you rev it to 9,000 RPM, if the thing doesn't grenade, it's not going to give you an advantage because if you actually look at the power and torque curve, you're already on the downside of the uh, the power and torque by the time you get to the factory rev limit. Uh, so by revving it to 9,000 RPM, you're simply going to make less power. So as you say, I mean, it, it, it's it's a knock-on effect. If you want to rev to 10,000 RPM, well, all of the other components, you also has to actually be able to flow. The cylinder head has to be able to support the required airflow. The camshafts have to be optimised for for that sort of airflow as well. So yeah, there's, there's a lot more to consider that I think is, is easy to overlook. And actually brings me to an, another good question here. Yeah, we've talked about this 10,000 RPM rev limit or the ability to rev that far and when you particularly when you're naturally aspirated obviously you can uh, add, add a turbo to your engine as well but when you're naturally aspirated there's only a few sort of levers we have available to pull in terms of uh, achieving a, a certain target RP, uh, horsepower level and RPM is a really good multiplier for our talk there so c- can you just give us a quick rundown on the relationship between power, torque, and RPM, and really why the high RPM number is so important to that equation. I think you'd be better at explaining that than me. <laughs> Honestly, uh, you you've gone over it so many times in uh, in multiple of your videos. Uh, but basically, because I'm limited on the amount of displacement I have. So in order to make more power, I have to go higher up in the RPM and to get higher in order to make that actually happen. That's why F1 engines rev up so high. I mean, the old V10s revved up to 20 grand. I mean, just absolutely insane. And it's because they had such small displacement. They were making up for that lack of displacement by revving the engine higher. Uh, for me, I have to go with titanium valves and uh, this ultra cus- uh, this ultra CNC head that's like at the very max limit of what you can do with the stock casting in order to get up to that RPM. And then I have to have a special camshaft that's uh, designed for those lift considerations. And then I have to make sure that my engine the piston to valve clearance is very tight and I have to triple check and make sure that everything is perfect because at that high of an RPM, things also flex and move around. And so you you have to reduce that valve train flex. And so the actual camshafts need to be made out of a stronger material. And it's just a knock on effect. And I think all of these things that, that again, for the average uh, enthusiast out there you just don't ever consider this but these are the the considerations and the the difficulties when you're trying to make a lot of power from a small capacity engine and just to bring you back to the to the f1 sort of comparison that you made there uh, I, I don't really remember the capacity maybe three and a half and then three liter when they were v10 and the final i think they got down to 2.4 liter v8 before this current crop of, of hybrid garbage but um <laughs> Not not a fan, sorry. Um, it's okay. But, I'm not a fan of the sound at all either. No, I don't think too many people are getting barred up about that. Uh, the the 2.4 litre though, I mean, you know, if we compare that to a conventional uh, automotive engine that we're, we're more familiar with, like the, 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 the sort of 
line in the sand was always 100 horsepower per litre. And I mean, now, you know, Honda K-Series, maybe 150 horsepower per litre is, is probably not uh, insurmountable, uh, a challenge, but not insurmountable. But then we've got these 2.4 litre engines in F1 revving, I think, don't quote me, maybe 18,000 at that point, and uh, making... Who do you want to believe? 750 to maybe 900 horsepower. Again, depending on what spec you want to believe. So, just just massive power horsepower per liter. But what again is easy to overlook when we're looking at these numbers is yeah, great. But we've got an engine that probably idles at four to five thousand RPM and probably doesn't make any power that's usable at all below fifteen or sixteen thousand RPM. And you know that that's the part that we need to understand. Everything in that engine is optimised for that tiny, tiny little rev range where the engine actually works. And then we've got technology like pneumatic valve train, which is unattainable for us in the, the passenger car sort of world. So bringing it back to something a little bit more manageable, 10,000 RPM, we don't need anything like pneumatic valve springs. Uh, but you do, and I'm, I'm not sure what how much of this you're using, one of the really nice advantages with Honda with their K-Series is we've got two technologies that work nicely in our favour. We've got their VTEC, which is nothing new, where we've got a, a, a low RPM optimised CAM profile and a high RPM optimised CAM profile, and then their IVTEC, which is just continuously variable CAM control on the inlet. So a lot of technology to really optimise the valve train operation so that we can kind of have our cake and eat it, the best of both worlds. We've got good low RPM performance and torque, which you've already kind of alluded to, but we're not compromising the high RPM performance, which would have to choose one of those two compromises if you were on a, a, a fixed cam profile. So I assume you are still using the, the VTEC system. Are you I also have using, to. <laughs> are you also using the continuously variable cam controller or are you too tight on valve to piston clearance to really uh-huh. get much out of that? I have to reduce it. Uh, I think it's down to 25 degrees uh, of uh, variability on my cam. Um, some of the IV tech, uh, it's it's like I want to say 40 degrees. So I'm I'm reduced at my amount that I can do, um, but I. I ha- I have to have VTEC. There's a Honda, and I think the Honda community would murder me if I did not have uh, regular VTEC as well. So but that is an advantage to you anyway, yes. isn't it, on all, the, the com- the, all of the aspects I just mentioned? Yes, and uh, I, w- I want this engine to be streetable for myself. And if it was just purely a race engine, I would probably eliminate eliminate VTEC and go with the VTEC killer setup and just go for that ultra number of uh, high performance and just try and hit that peak number. But I want drivability and that high RPM. So I'm going for kind of the limit of what is both streetable and the high RPM. So it's like a stage four cam. And then stage five is when they cut off uh, the actual, uh, all the other lobes and just stick with the VTEC lobes. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Um, now, you've also mentioned in passing here the the strength of the crankshaft, and I just want to dive into this. I think I remember reading uh, one of your Instagram posts about this, but uh, again, often overlooked aspect of the strength of the crankshaft. A lot of this is dictated by the overlap between the main bearing journal and the connecting rod journal, and that's given you a few complexities with this engine. Can you talk us through what the problem is there and how you've overcome it? 
Yeah, so it was actually a, a, a big pain spot for me in designing this engine. So with the K24 it and a normal four-cylinder, you have a lot of meat in between one main bearing and then the next main bearing. So you have a lot of room in, in there. So it's 94 millimeter bore spacing doesn't really negatively affect it. And its crankshaft bearing overlap area is only 18 millimeters squared. So that main bearing to the rod bearing, that overlap area is only 18 millimeters squared. Again, and this is this is something that's difficult to uh, visualize without the benefit of of some pictures. So just to try and sort of describe in a bit more detail what you're talking about there, if we take a cross section uh, vertically through the crankshaft, what you're talking about is if you look at uh, the rod journal, that's a circle, and that overlaps with the main bearing journal. So it's that overlap of material you're talking about there was 18 millimetres squared. Is that, that what you that said? That is correct. Okay, we're just and, trying our very best yeah. to kind of explain what we're talking about here without the benefit of visuals. Uh, you did an excellent job, much better than me. Uh, and so for me... That just would not fly. Once you put in another set of connecting rods in that exact same space of 94 millimeters, you have no room. And you need to still have strength in the crankshaft to be able to handle potentially boost and these high horsepower uh, naturally aspirated uh, things. And so I actually had to change the bearings on my engine. My bearings are not Honda. Well, I have main bearings from a Lamborghini. Uh, it, it sounds it sounds a little crazy, but it's actually don't don't tell anyone. But it's actually the same as an Audi R8, which is the same as their 4.2 liter that was in their B5. It, 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 they use this because they're they're bore spacing was so tight on both their V8 and their uh, V10. They have very uh, thin main bearings, but that are very large. I want to say it's 67 millimeters. And so that's versus Honda, which is only 55 millimeters. That extra 12 millimeters is huge. Mm -hmm. And then I switched from the K-Series rod journal size of 50 millimeters to the actual J35, uh, which I believe is 60 millimeters. Uh, so you've gone larger in the main bearing diameter or main journal diameter and also larger in the big end diameter. So you've basically increased the overlap on both sides. Yeah. And so now I went from 18 millimeters squared to 272 or 275 millimeters squared. And uh, so it's a big difference and that that allows me to get much closer in strength to the targets I'm hitting. A regular uh, LS3 V8 is 200 millimeters squared is what they have. Uh, An actual like Voodoo V8 is around 370. Um, So even at my 272, there's still more engines that have even more overlap but 
uh, I'm, I'm limited by the bearing speed at this point now. Because if I go larger than this, I have bearing speed issues. And so, got to... Uh, bearing speed issue, that's something I haven't really uh, had much given much consideration to. So just, just talk us through sort of what that term means. Should be pretty self-explanatory. But what it term means and like where, where that bearing speed limit comes from, what, what defines that? Okay, so a bearing speed is basically the amount of surface area of the bearing and that is rotating about an axis. So if you have, let's say, a 10 millimeter, or you could even think of like a, a turbocharger's uh, shaft, and that'll spin at incredibly high RPMs, and it's not going to explode. But like, if you spun those exact same numbers on a, a V8, it would immediately grenade itself. And it's because of the amount of surface area that's being moving around the object, that surface area. And so you can, there's, it, it moves up exponentially. As you have a very small shaft, you can spin it much faster than a very large, thick shaft. Then you're limited on the amount of speed you can put in. And so the bearings that I actually have are very high performance bearings from King that have specialty coatings. And then I'm actually sending them off to another shop to have them uh, have another coating put on top of that just to reduce uh, the actual, make sure that the bearings will live at the RPM targets that I'm saying that my engine should be able to handle. Yeah, And so that was extremely critical. So finding high performance bearings that could handle the RPM and then working with King to make sure that the RPMs uh, I was suggesting and wanting to do were actually possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I want to move on and talk about probably one of the more hotly debated topics that I see uh, people questioning about uh, pun completely intended there, <laughs> which is your hot V configuration with this V8. So yeah. hot V, the exhaust manifolds are, in seemingly an unconventional position in the middle of the V in the valley where in a lot of applications we see the intake manifold more conventionally there. But Hot V is certainly not uh, not unique. You haven't invented it. But can you talk to us about why you were forced down this path and, and maybe pros and cons of Hot V versus a conventional V? Yeah, so uh, as you said, I was forced down this path. And that's one thing that uh, I get so, so many questions about is why, why is the exhaust in the center? Why is it in the center? Uh, you should switch it. You should <laughs> switch it. And it's like, yeah, I've answered that, this. Eh? Yeah. I, I didn't think about this one. Uh, it was actually a, a major pain point. Um, so I designed, I've been working on this project for the last five years, roughly. And uh, uh, in my free time and in my time that's kind of like force but um basically the the timing chain tensioner on the k-series and its location once you switch it over to v8 ends up a dead center on the main block and the girdle with the bottom end of the engine it ends up right in between those two locations and then it ends up right in the middle of a, the engine's like main bearing studs. And so it's like, 
this is basically there are ways I could have possibly gotten around it. I looked at switching to a Mazda uh, timing chain tensioner or to VW one and the one that was hydraulic, uh, that was like gas assisted instead of being oil driven. And that I looked at all of these different options, but I kept running into hitting and being on the actual parting line of the block and also running into the main studs of the engine. And it it was almost, uh, I almost quit the project. I actually stepped away from it for like six months and my, I had already bought like an engine that I 3d scanned and I had already like put all this effort into it. And I had spent so much time. Uh, and then I was like, well, let's switch it to a hot V. Uh, I remembered going to Barrett Jackson when I was like, I don't know, 2004 ish. And I saw this Ford Falcon that had a hot V engine. I was like, this looks so cool. It's like all the exhaust uh, tubes in the center and it came out the front and it went down under the car. It was a really cool design. And indie cars back in the day, uh, they were hot Vs and a lot of modern uh, turbocharged uh, V8 engines are now hot Vs. And some V6s are also switching to it as well. Um, Is it uh, quite commonly, I think, with um, some of the European V8 uh, twin turbo engines that that the hot V is just the way they've gone? Uh, Yeah, so uh, even Ford, their diesels, their power stroke diesels uh, are uh, hot Vs and uh, Cadillac, they have a hot V. And then all the German uh, V8s, uh, turbocharged Porsche, uh, Audi, Mercedes, BMW, they are all hot Vs. So this is something that's uh, unconventional, but is becoming more conventional. Even Toyota is about to release a hot V uh, engine. And um, it's it's really nice for packaging of a turbocharger on top of your engine. Basically, by having a hot V, you can mount your turbochargers inside the valley of the engine. And then uh, by having them mounted inside the valley of the engine, inside that V, you can have an extremely short uh, intercooler uh, or turbocharger to intake uh, piping that is very short and extremely compact. And it reduces your lag and improves the responsiveness of the engine. Um, Mercedes, you know, they caught a lot of flack when they switched from the M156, their, you know, C63 V8 engine, really awesome and amazing one. And then switched to their, their new engine, which was a hot V engine, but it's, my wife had that car, the W205 uh, C63, and that car, you could barely tell that it was turbocharged. Its uh, response to the throttle was so fast and so quick. So it makes a lot of sense for turbo- turbocharged applications. And I believe most of my builds uh, that people, most of them, will probably go down that turbocharger route either eventually or at some point. Um, And I think that'll be a very common thing for uh, the people that are interested in my engine. And so 
it makes a lot of sense for that. And since I was forced down that direction, it it's okay. And then for a naturally aspirated V8, it doesn't make as much sense because those uh, the exhaust manifold gets a little crazy and it's a bundle of snakes. And but it will have a distinct sound and it will have a distinct look that will help it stand apart. Yeah, definitely. It's maybe not going to be for everyone. Uh, the fabricators no. are probably going to hate hate it, particularly naturally aspirated, but. As you say, I mean, your hand was forced, so it kind of is what it is. Um, one last point on that, which has been picked up on a number of times that I've seen as well, is obviously uh, heat management does become a consideration. Um, you're not worried about that? How, how have you circumventing issues there? Yeah, so a lot of hot V engines, especially some of the earlier ones, like uh the BMW uh, N63 had issues with heat management and they would cook their valve cover gaskets. Just, it was just a matter of time. It wasn't if, it was just when. And um, so for me, what I'm doing is uh, I'm doing a more modern style uh, heat shielding that is, press fit and is stainless steel with a thermal insulation and then stainless steel. And it's this like dimple die thing. And that is then formed onto the exhaust manifold itself. And that keeps and retains the heat inside of there. And it actually improves uh, your uh, turbocharger response times as well. So it's a beneficial um, you can also ceramic coat it and do that, but generally that's not as necessary. Uh, but this new style of heat shielding um, is very powerful and much more capable than, say, even like a titanium wrap or uh, ceramic. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that heat uh, shielding and thermal management products have come a long way. Uh, and you know, there's, there's been a lot that's also been developed for professional motorsport and OE applications that you know you've now got access to. So yeah, I, I think with the the right management, and it does need some consideration, but the right management, uh, it really is an issue. Uh, look, Craig, I, I'm I'm sort of I've got a, probably about another hour worth of questions I could ask you. I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface here, but uh, we we're probably getting a little bit long here, and I do also want to be to respect your your time as well. I, I think what we'd probably like to do is uh, is simply have you back as a, as a guest again uh, maybe once you've got the engine a little further along and uh, maybe up and running and uh, we can we can work out sort of how the validation of the project came out and uh, whether you hit your numbers and how everything's working out so I think we'll, we'll finish up with uh, a couple of last questions and uh, the first of those is if you sort of looking at your the point you're at now in, in your professional career and what you're doing uh, if you were to give advice to a younger version of yourself uh, in terms of how to fast track uh, your career and where you've got to, uh, what advice would you give? Uh, you know, I've had a lot of uh, different engineers reach out to me that are young and in college, and the my recommendation is always this. Create a personal portfolio of yourself, of your personal passion projects that you're working on, and showcase that you can do things in CAD and then create also 
some mathematical analysis of whatever part you're designing, whether it's a Nerf gun or whether it's like a mouse, uh, use some simulation and create this brand of yourself as being capable of understanding materials, being able to use CAD and to use simulation, and that those three things dictate your engineering process and that you can showcase your failures and your successes because that all together is what engineering all about engineering is just fancy problem solving sure. and that's it yeah it makes a lot of sense and so i think i would just showcase some of that even more than what i did uh in college yeah i think that uh speaks volumes to a potential employer uh, particularly if you're trying to get into the motorsport side of mechanical engineering and design you know, having that personal portfolio and being able to show a potential employer, you know, well, th- this is my skill set uh, that that speaks volumes, and and it's going to be a very powerful uh, CV, I believe. And uh, last question for today, Craig: If people do want to follow you, if they've been hiding under a rock and they haven't seen your work so far, uh, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, and that's my main uh, area. I'm under Neutron Engines. And uh, I post pretty much everything. I'm an open book. I showcase some of my successes, some of my failures, and some of my challenges. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Neutron Engines. And I'll show basically the whole engine design process and talk about each part of it as I go along. There's a huge amount of uh, information in there for those who are wanting to dig into your older posts. And I also respect the fact that uh, you seem to put in a lot of effort to answer uh, the questions you get. And there are a lot of questions. I, I know uh, for our own Instagram account that that's, that's a lot of work. So respect there. Look, Craig, uh, really, it's been a, a great interview and really interesting to get some more insight into the development of your V8. We cannot wait to see how it goes once it hits the dyno and the racetrack. So we wish you all the best and look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you again. And hopefully it's not about a table and it's about a, a well-running engine and uh, maybe it'll be at PRI or some other locations and you know we'll see where it goes from here look forward to it all right that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring car suspension and wheel alignment uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. 
If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.